Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We're not in Philippians today. Uh, Thursday night I preached to the pastor's conference and Pastor Killingsworth asked me to give the sermon that I gave that night to the church this morning. So this morning our sermon is from the book of Matthew, chapter 11. I just want to give you a little background about what had happened in chapter 10. Jesus had sent the disciples out. He sent out 70 with authority to heal, to cast out demons, and to preach. And they were to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after he gave these instructions, he went into cities and he started doing work in cities. And at that point, John, who was then in prison, sent word to Jesus and he said, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? John the Baptist. And Jesus said to the men that John had sent, go and tell John what you see and hear. The deaf have their hearing, the blind see, the dead the, are raised, the, the gospel is being preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not take any offense at me. Blessed is the one who literally isn't scandalized by me. And then he goes on and starts talking about the people at that time, and he says, you know, uh, the people today, this is what you're like. You're like a bunch of kids in the market who say to each other, hey, we're going we're gonna to play wedding. Dance with us. We're going to sing. And nobody sings. And then they say, no, hey, let's play funeral. Let's all mourn together and play funeral. And nobody wants to play funeral. He says, you're just like that. John came and he was preaching to repent. And you said, oh man, that guy. He looks like the guy, he looks like one of those guys on the corner with the cardboard sign. He looks like he doesn't dress very nicely. He looks pretty rough and messed up. That John, he looks like he might have some mental problems. He looks like a demon. But the problem with that was that John wasn't having a demon. John was preaching to repent. And the people that believed John were people that understood that they needed repentance. So tax collectors, who were essentially thieves, prostitutes, promiscuous people, the, the lower people in society were believing and repenting of their sins. And then Jesus comes along and he actually goes to dinner with the tax collectors. And there are people there at the dinners like the woman who was, uh, had a, a reputation for being a bad kind of woman. And he goes and he loves these people and calls them to repentance. And so people look at John and say, you have a demon. And then they look at Jesus and they say, you're just like everybody else. You're just a glutton and a drunk. And the people doing this are basically just judging, judging and judging. And so Jesus then goes on and he denounces the cities where he had done all these miracles. He, said, he says, woe to you. If the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah that you've seen, they would have repented. But you have seen wondrous things and you wouldn't believe. They would not believe. J.C. Ryle, in commenting about this, says, it is a mournful fact that there are always thousands of professing Christians just as unreasonable as these Jews. 
They are equally perverse and equally hard to please. Whatever we teach and preach, they find fault. Whatever be our manner of life, they are dissatisfied. Do we tell them of salvation by grace and justification by faith? At once they cry out against our doctrine as licentious and antinomian. What that means is that if we tell them about salvation by faith, they'll say, well, you don't believe in living a holy life, right? Do we tell them of the holiness that the gospel requires? At once they exclaim that we are too strict and precise and righteous over much. Are we cheerful? They accuse us of levity. Are we grave? They call us gloomy and sour. Do we keep aloof from parties and races and plays? They denounce us as puritanical, exclusive, and narrow-minded. Do we eat and drink and dress like other people and attend to our worldly callings and go into society? They sneeringly insinuate that they see no difference between us and they who make no religious profession at all, and that we are not better than other men. What is this but the conduct of the Jews over again? We piped a song, you wouldn't dance. We mourned and you wouldn't lament. Jesus knew the hearts of men. At about the time after he pronounced these woes, somewhere in this time, if you try to merge Luke's account with Matthew's, about this time probably the 70 are coming back, announcing what had happened as they were out preaching, right? (laughs) And so Jesus then says these words, starting at verse 25 of Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way is well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. God has hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to infants. Well, what makes somebody an infant in this case? It's not that they only consume milk and not solid food. We know the Bible talks about us being as infants, sometimes in a good way we should be like infants, and then sometimes in a bad way where we shouldn't be like infants. We should want to have solid food. We should learn of the things of God and not just stay in infancy in our knowledge. And it doesn't want us to be foolish, it wants us to be wise. So in this sense, it's not saying that that wisdom that, that, God, that God hid by hiding these things from the wise, that these wise people are wise in the ways that God wants us to be wise. It just means that they think much of themselves. So what is it saying? It says, God will reveal these things to infants, those who acutely feel their spiritual weariness and need, those who carry a burden those who feel their need to come for him, the very people that when John and Jesus preached to them repented because they felt the need. And so he says in verse 28, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, a yoke, if you don't know, it's not the thing in a chicken egg. A yoke is a thing that was put on the animal's neck. Like if you had horses or oxen and you were pulling a load, you would put the yoke on their neck and the yoke was the thing to which the traces or the the lines or the chains were attached, and so they were pulling 
The load was the yoke as the animal pulled. And Jesus is saying, come and be in yoke here with me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Spiritual rest comes as a result or in the train of faith. Hebrews 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please him for the one who, Jesus says, come to me, the one, and Hebrews 11 says, the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith. And so coming to Jesus requires faith. Jesus says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But it can only come as a product and as a result of faith. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Those who can hear will come to him. We need rest when we're weary, right? We can think of all kinds of ways that we get weary. We get physical fatigue, we get mental fatigue, we get emotional fatigue, and we get spiritual fatigue, which is what I'm concentrating on this morning. But if we address these needs, we address them in different ways. When we address physical fatigue, what do we do? Well, if you're like most everybody, you sleep. You, you, you sleep. But sometimes if you're like me and you have a job where you sit all the time, you actually can get some physical uh, refreshment from working. It's odd, right? It's like people that, blue-collar people, when they go on vacation, blue-collar people work all the time, they go on vacation, they rent an RV or they go to a hotel and they sit and they look out the window this is what blue-collar people like to do when they're on vacation because they work all the time, right? White-collar people, what do they do? They strap a bag on their back and they take their elven rope and they go off into the woods, right? And they try to make a fire. You know, it's because they've been sitting at a desk all the time. They want to do something physical, right? Well, we get refreshment that way. We sleep. Mental fatigue. Well, we sleep again with mental fatigue. Or you might want to do something really different. Maybe you need to design uh, a gazebo or a, a raised bed in your backyard or something. Or you're working on rebuilding a motorcycle or a car. Something like that. Emotional fatigue. Again, sleep. Sleep is so important, isn't it? It's kind of a basic. We need sleep. Or you might just need to laugh. You might need some joy. You might need to sit with some friends and, and think about how ridiculous you are or your situation is and just laugh and laugh until those long muscles in your belly start to knot up and you have to stand up. Did anybody else have to do that? Just me, I guess. But you stand up so that they'll, they have to be stretched out so, until they calm down. That's nice. It gives you some refreshment emotionally. But spiritual rest is different than the others. Spiritual fatigue is different than the others. Spiritual fatigue is different in this sense. While all, other, all people commonly have physical, emotional, and mental fatigue, not everybody has spiritual fatigue. Spiritual fatigue requires that you have the knowledge of something. It requires that you have your eyes open. It requires that your ears can hear. Spiritual Fatigue requires that you have enough knowledge of yourself and what ought to be that you see that you don't fulfill what ought to be, and so it makes you tired. It's a load on you. But there are many people who never feel this load because they never feel that they are not what they ought to be. Okay? And so the Bible talks about them, the wicked in Psalm 10. 
who in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All his thoughts actually are, there is no God. And it says, his ways prosper at all times. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Through all generations, I will not be in adversity. He's proud, right? In Psalm 73, it says, I I see the wicked man. He says, his body is fat. In fact, his eyes bulge with fat. And he never has any problems. Everything is good for him. Even when he dies, there isn't any pain. He's just, it's all easy for him. And he says, there's no God. He never feels the burden of his own sin. He never feels his own need. Spiritual fatigue is a consequence of sin. Paul says when he realized that he was a covetous man, it says, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment, thou shalt not covet, sin, it says, deceived me and killed me. I realized that I was a covetous man and, that I, and I realized that God says thou shalt not be a covetous man and sin killed me. Ugh! Sin makes us tired. It's a weight. It's a burden. And for the believer, spiritual fatigue short circuits the possibility of the other kinds of rest. David says when it comes to his physical and his mental and his emotional rest in Psalm 38, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am benumbed, badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. He goes on. He can't get physical rest, he can't get emotional rest, he can't get mental rest, because his sins plaguing him, the weight of his sin plagues him. This is a common observation. Those who are shackled by sin exhibit quite regularly every form of unrest. They are often emotionally unstable, physically ill, and are clouded in their minds. Now, I am not saying that all of these things originate in sin. Everybody got that. Except this, they did all originate in sin in that Adam sinned first and brought them all on us. Okay? But I'm not saying that every time somebody is unable to rest physically, emotionally, or mentally, that it's because they have sinned specifically. But quite often this is the case. I would say more often than not in my observation, this is the case. Sins bring on us the inability to rest and we are plagued by them. There is like a burden on us. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim carries around a burden. And the burden, you know, I've seen illustrations of it and sometimes it looks like a backpack. But I don't like those ones. I like the ones where it looks like, you know, a Volkswagen is strapped on his back. And you really get the idea that his life, it's not like a backpack. Yeah, I can, you know, I can get along with a backpack. It's not like that. No, no. It's just crushing him. It's crushing him. The weight of his sin crushes him, and he needs relief. 
and he has this incredible burden, this spiritual fatigue. Sin cannot be addressed by using a substance, a technique, or a physical act. No pill, no coping mechanism, no breathing exercise or yoga pose can neutralize the burden of sin. You understand? I'm not saying don't take the pill, don't take this, don't take that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if the cause is sin, it won't be neutralized by it. Nearly 40 years ago, Alan Bloom wrote the book, The Closing of the American Mind, where he writes, psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. They promote an ideology that provides not a reason, but a rationalization. That was nearly 40 years ago, and it hasn't gotten better. We're rationalizing everything now. No, people. Sin. Pilgrim doesn't rationalize. He comes to the place that he's been told to go. He comes to the cross, and he, he gets up that hill to the cross, and suddenly, if you, if you know the story of Pilgrim, suddenly the Volkswagen, the, 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 the ropes that are binding it onto him snap at the cross, and the whole giant burden rolls down the hill and into a tomb and he's free, okay? He finds rest, and then he says, thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must there be the beginning of my bliss? Must the burden of, must the here I'm sorry, must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher or grave. Blessed rather the man that there was put to shame for me. Spiritual rest from fatigue, it's a gift. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of forgiveness. It's the gift of coming to Jesus Christ. I have a... I have some visual stuff to help us today. So, could you put up the first one? I, okay, hold on to this one for a second. So, Hoover Dam, Hoover Dam took four years to build. There's enough concrete in Hoover Dam to pave a 16-foot wide highway from San Francisco, California to New York City, New York. That's what they claim, okay? Lake Mead contains enough water to cover the state of Connecticut 10 feet deep, the entire state. There's 45,000 pounds of square of, of pressure at the bottom of the base of the dam in the lake, 45,000 pounds of pressure per square foot at the bottom of the dam. It has a lot of weight, that dam, 6.6 .6 million tons. And guess what? After, four, after uh, two years after they let the lake in and filled up behind it, it started leaking. Now, I don't mean the little tiny drips that you'll see if you go on a tour today. I mean it started leaking badly. They were worried about it. Then they started studying what they 
understood to be the hydraulic lift of the dam. This blue line down here represents the acceptable pressure at certain points under the dam of hydraulic lift. This blue line up here represents what they measured in pressure at those points two years after they put water against it. They started to worry. It was leaking bad and there was too much pressure. And so what they realized is that they had made some mistakes in construction. One of the things they did in construction is they put in something called a grout curtain, which is a line from the top of, uh, can we go to the next slide? From the top of, this is like the dam as it sits between the two hills, right? From the top of here all the way down and then all the way back up again, they drilled holes 100 feet, a line all the way down and all the way up, a line with holes 100 feet in. And this was before they put any concrete in and they filled them with grout. And they were basically trying to stop any water flow that would go through the rock or through any kind of crevices or anything that was in there. And they called it the grout curtain. But they failed in some ways. They failed because they didn't fill all the holes. They, got, they were in a hurry, they wanted to pour concrete. They failed in that they, they, they hit some pockets of steam and there was pressure and they thought, well, we'll just let that one go. And when they got done putting in that grout curtain, then they built the dam. But guess what? The, the, the hydraulic pressure they were measuring was a function of water getting under and around the dam. And the grout curtain wasn't sustaining what it was supposed to sustain. So this is what they had to do. They had to take these, these little, uh, you see these little uh, dotted line things here? These little roads inside the dam? Those are little galleries. They're like six feet wide, seven feet tall, little hallways. Concrete everywhere around you, just little galleries. They had to go into those galleries. Can we have the next slide? This is a guy, you see this guy right here? Right there? Looks like, uh, I'm not sure. It doesn't look like a crumb, I'm not sure who he looks like. And he's in the gallery, you see this wall here, you see this wall here, and then the roof just goes up over his head right here. And he's got this drill, and he's drilling new holes for a new improved grout curtain inside the dam. He's drilling holes while the water is against the dam under pressure. He's drilling holes not 100 feet deep, but sometimes 300 feet deep. And then they're going to pump grout in and glue this thing shut. This is the, this is the plan. So go to the next slide. The next slide shows the original holes in these lines are the original grout holes. This is the perimeter of the new improved grout. Okay, next slide. This is the new grout holes with the line being the old perimeter. Okay, everybody see that now. They had to do this all while the dam was under pressure. It took four years to build Hoover Dam, enough concrete to go from San Francisco to New York City. How long did it take to fix it? Nine years. Nine years of men in those little channels, drilling, 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 drilling. 
and pumping grout into it. Now, why did I bring this up? Why did I show you this? Well, listen, Lake Mead brings pressure to Hoover Dam, but boy, sin brings pressure to us. And it wants to wash us away. It wants to destroy us. It wants to just eradicate us and destroy us. Just as Paul said, it wants to kill us. That's what it does. And we have a load of things that we're up against. First, we're up against the world itself. Ephesians 6 says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that we need to put on the full armor of God so that we can fight against the schemes of the devil to resist in the evil day. Well, what are the schemes of the devil? Schemes, 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 one on top of another. How many messages do you see and hear every single day that testify against the existence of God? Have you thought about it? There is a relentless barrage of messages telling us, no, there's no God, no, there's no God, no, there's no God, constantly, constantly. And these are the schemes. It's constantly coming at us all the time. The pressure rises as the world pushes against us. Then we have the struggles of our lives. Psalm 90 says, the days of our lives contain 70, or if due to strength, 80. Their pride is but labor and sorrow. Our lives, when you get older, young people, you, got, you get to have some white and gray, and you start to realize every time, you, every time you call Katie McDaniel to help you do your taxes, you start to realize you don't have, there's only one relief coming to you for taxes. Guess what it is? The other inevitable thing. Right? And so life itself brings struggles with it. The days our labor often and sorrow. And it's pressure building against us. Then we have our homes. Everything's good at home, right? <laughs> the plumbing always works and, and the, the accounts always balance. The car always starts. The attitudes are always pleasant at home. Everybody, this is my house. Is it your, your house? The wife or mother is always honored and loved and the, the husband and father is always honored and respected. Children are always obedient. No pressure at the home. We'll just skip on to the next thing. Our sin. Paul says in Romans 7, I am doing the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Listen, those men, those wicked men who say there's no God, that's a line they never say. And if you can say that line, if you have any idea or any concept about identifying with the line, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death, that's a gift from God to you. Do you understand? Because then you're at a place where you know what you need. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? We have our sins, sins peculiar to ourselves, even to our situations. Even in this room, we have sins of women, sins of men, sins of children, sins of youth, sins of middle age, sins of the elderly, 
sins of those who keep at home, sins of those in the workplace, sins of pastors, sins of elders, sins of deacons, sins of Titus II women, sins of introverts, sins of extroverts, sins of the tall, sins of the short, sins of the blonde, sins of the black-haired, sins of the ginger-haired person, sins of the fat, sins of the thin, sins of those who are just right or think of themselves that way, sins of the wise, sins of the foolish, sins of the intelligent, sins of the simple, sins of the poor, sins of the rich, sins of the middle class, sins of the flesh, sins of the eye, sins of the boastful pride of life. We have them and so many more, don't we? Don't we? And like a giant body of water, they're pushing on us, trying to just wash us away and destroy us in every way possible and we think we can stand alone. (laughs) We think we can stand alone. And Jesus says, now come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. We have obstacles to our rest. One, the first one is that we just, we won't come to him. We won't come. We object to arriving there. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher, what? Is it 100 years now? 80-ish? Yeah. Uh, A good generation earlier, uh, early my father's generation, is what I'd say, yeah. He does a sermon on this text, and it's just excellent. In fact, there's a recording of it where he actually repeats over and over again a phrase, for to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. For to travel hopefully is a better thing thing than to arrive. And it's a quote from Robert Louis Stevenson and it's right out of Hell's Handbook. Because it is really the the philosophy of our world. It's very akin to what um, John Lennon said when he said, life is what happens when you're waiting for life to happen. If you remember that quote. And it's basically that this is what it's all about and so travel hopefully. This is all it is. There isn't any arrival. Arrival's not what we're after. We're not at getting to a goal. And this is sin. This is what the children of Israel were sinning when, they, when we read in our scripture lesson this morning. When the children of Israel were sinning and they were rejecting God and they wouldn't go into the promised land and they complained to Moses over and over and over again. Why did you bring us out here to die? Why did you bring us out here to die? We could be in Egypt right now eating leek soup. Now, leek, if you don't know what a leek is, it's not like what was happening with Hoover Dam. It's spelled differently. And it's like a long uh, tube-shaped onion, right? We could be eating nasty onion soup in Egypt, and you brought us out here. And men went into the promised land, and they brought out the produce of the promised land, and they, two of them said, look at this, this is wonderful, we should go in, it's the rest, it's the promise. And then others came out of the promised land and said, but there's big guys in there, big guys in there. Mind you, they said this to people who had just watched all of the plagues of Egypt, then walked out of town with all the spoils of the people of Egypt, and then come to the Red Sea, God opened it up in front of them, they walked through, they got to the other side, the Egyptian army came into the sea and God swallowed them up. They saw all of that and they get to the gate of the promised land and the promise of the rest God said he was going to give them, and they said, traveling 
hopefully is better than this. It's scary to arrive. We'd rather travel hopefully back in Egypt with our leek soup. And it was wicked, wicked. But we often think that ourselves, don't we? We often think that we can travel hopefully. And the fact of the matter is, no, no, it's better than to arrive. They had the good news preached to them, and we have had the good news preached to us. But the word that they heard did not profit them, it says in Hebrews 4. Does it profit us? It didn't profit those cities that Jesus preached in. Does it profit us? Will you object to entering into that rest? Listen, it's better to arrive. (laughs) It's better to get there. The rest is better. Coming to Jesus is better. It's wonderful. Matthew Henry says, we who have believed do enter into rest. We enter into a blessed union with Christ and into a communion with God through Christ. In this state, we actually enjoy many sweet communications of pardon of sin, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and earnests of glory, that's promise of heaven, earnests of glory, resting from the servitude of sin, and reposing ourselves in God till we are prepared to rest with him in heaven. A rest of grace and comfort and holiness in the gospel state, which is a great term, the gospel state. This is the rest wherewith the Lord Jesus, our Joshua, causes weary souls and awakened consciences to rest. This is the refreshing, the refreshing the rest of the gospel state. Do you find yourself there in the gospel rest? Have you arrived? Secondly, second obstacle, our failure to continue. Hebrews says, take care, brethren, in chapter three, verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God but encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. No one can live unless he lives in me, tapped into me, receiving life through me. No one can live without that. What do we do? How are we continuing? How are we tapped in? Do you guys remember John Fradiani, our dear brother? Okay, what does John Fradiani always say to you when he sees you? Have you read your Bible, David? He would say it every time. What a gift to us. What a gift to us. I'm afraid to ask you. John never was afraid. You're afraid to ask me. John never was afraid. What are you doing in terms of your devotions? How are you giving yourself to abiding in Christ? Are you connecting to him, to that rest, by accessing him, by being on your knees in prayer? Have you ever noticed how, more, how difficult it is, the, the less corporate 
we are in prayer, the more difficult it is to get on our knees. It's easy for me on Sunday morning with everybody to get on my knees in prayer. It gets harder on Monday night at the prayer meeting. It's more hard when you're at home with your family, having family devotions, everybody get on their knees, and you're dad, and you're leading them. Everybody get on their knees. But when you're all by yourself, and you stand before God, and you realize, this is me and God. This is just him and I right now. He and I here. I have to get on my knees now? Are you following me? Does anybody else have this issue in them? I know I do. It's like now, it's, it's so much more real because it's just me. It's just me and just God. I come to him by faith and I get on my knees, right? We get on our knees and we pray. And then what about your fight against sin? Have you fought against sin? Have you seen progress in the past year as you fought against your sin? Has, has, has a pastor or an elder or a Christian brother or sister ever said to you, stop sinning? Anybody ever say, had anybody say stop sinning? Oh, you don't want to raise your hand because then you got to admit that you sinned, right? So stop sinning. Well, what kind of a legitimate command is that? Who, who has the audacity to just tell somebody to stop sinning? Could you imagine someone just saying, go and stop sinning? It's not ringing any bells yet with you? How many times did Jesus tell the people right after he healed them or forgave them or cast the demon out of them, did he say to them, go and... Sin no more. Stop sinning. What sin have you stopped recently? Have you read your Bible? Are you praying? On your knees or not on your knees? Are you praying? Your personal devotion is indispensable. You must abide in the vine or you die. Can you put that slide back up? Slide number three, Daniel, please. This guy's having his quiet time. You see him? You see him? It's under pressure right now. There's thousands of pounds of pressure against, against what he's doing right now. And he's drilling in deep. And he's going to cement himself to the rock. That's what he's doing. And I like this image because I think, man, that just makes me think about our coming to God, depending on him. Are you having time with God where you are cementing yourself to him, where you are in Christ and abiding in Christ? You know. Children, are you praying? Children, are you worshiping God, but not just here? Not just when you're here. Teenagers. Not just when you're here. When you're alone. Young adults. Parents. Middle-aged people. Old people. Are we, are we coming to God? Are we coming to Christ? Are we seeking him for our rest?
Are we abiding in him? Jesus says that God has revealed this to infants, that the Lord of heaven and earth, who is the father of all, has revealed it to infants. He's the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. Infants are completely dependent but how do children come to their fathers? How do, you, how do children come to you? How do your children come to you? How did you go to your parents? Maybe you don't have children yet. How did you go to, to your parents? If you had a cut on your finger, how did you go to your parents? Uh, fix it, right? If you had done something wrong, how did you go to your parents? Maybe you're carrying the broken object in your hand, right? If you wanted love, how did you go to your parents? Ah, this is my favorite one with the grandchildren. Ah. If you were just at, at the end of your rope, how did you go to your parents? God is your father. Maybe you were the person who had the father that if you came to him with one of those expressions, he kicked you, and I'm sorry. He wasn't supposed to. But that's not the heavenly father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. Oh, he delights in his children. He delights in caring for us in every way possible. You need to go to him and to seek him. Come to him. All who are weary and heavy laden, he will give you rest. He will give you rest. I'm going to end with a, a, a verse from Jesus, cast a look on me. Jesus, uh, make me like a little child of my strength and wisdom spoiled, seeking, seeing only in thy light, walking only in thy might. Make me like a little child of thy strength and wisdom spoiled. You know, when I was a child, I didn't think there was anything that my father couldn't do. And I didn't think that there was anything my father didn't know. Now, I grew to understand, and and becoming a father myself, I grew to understand that as a placeholder in fatherhood, my father wasn't capable of doing and knowing everything, but he was a good placeholder. But God Almighty, from whom all fatherhood gets its name, he knows everything, and he can do everything. Okay? This is the God that you come to for rest. You need rest? He's the God you go to for rest. And he delights to give it to us. He delights to give it to us. I want to close with a prayer, an excerpt from... uh, Augustine, so please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Oh, how shall I find rest in you? Who will send you into my heart to inebriate it, so that I might forget my woes and embrace you, my only good. Alas, alas, tell me of your compassion, O Lord my God, what you are to me. 
Say unto my soul, I am your salvation. So speak that I may hear. Behold, Lord, the ears of my heart are before you. Open them and say to my soul, I am your salvation. When I hear, may I run and lay hold on you. In Jesus' name, amen.